Hi, and welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans in arts and culture from Korean American Story. I'm Katherine Hong, a writer and editor. And I'm Juliana Sohn, a photographer. Today, we interview Michelle Zahner, who is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist best known for the dreamy indie pop band Japanese Breakfast. She has a new album coming out in June titled Jubilee, but we spoke with her for a book that she is debuting this month called Crying in H Mart. This is a book that first appeared in the form of an essay also titled Crying in H Mart. It ran in The New Yorker in 2018, and it was such an incredibly moving essay where she talks about wandering through the aisles of H Mart after her mother dies of cancer. Now, Michelle is half Korean and half white, and her strongest bonds with her Korean mother had always been through food and cooking. So once her mom died, she had not only the loss of her beloved mother, but a crisis of identity, this loss of connection with Korean culture. I was so interested, not only because I love food writing, but because she talks so articulately about that experience of being half Korean and something that... I've always been fascinated with. There are so few half Koreans or half Asians that I met growing up. I was always curious about what that would that experience would be like, you know, how you look half and half and the stigma, really. You're right. There was a stigma when we were growing up about being half because, you know, our parents' generation, when they came to the States, they wanted to assimilate, but they also were really fearful about losing their identity. And to see these half Asian kids, half Korean kids, was um, was a real worry for them. And and it's amazing to me how, you know, how much has changed within our lifetimes, because you and I have um, half Korean uh, children, and uh, maybe growing up in New York, which is such a diverse city, um, it doesn't seem like it's such an issue. But I really enjoyed reading about Michelle's journey, because she really searches for her identity with intent. Uh, being half, I think she makes more of uh, a concerted effort to search for her identity, which I think you and I take much more for granted. And in reading her book, it made me realize that, you know, I think there are so many times when I thought, I think she is so much more Korean than I am. She's embraced it in a way that's apparent to anyone who's been a fan of her music. I think she's a fantastic role model. And I love that, that she's this cool indie rocker chick out there, um, really independent spirit, uh, because I love claiming her as one of our own community members. And I'm really excited that my kids have somebody like her out there that they can um, see as a, an, an independent person. Totally agree. So I hope everybody enjoys hearing to our conversation. Again, it's Michelle's honor and the book is Crying in H Mart. Thank you for having me. So while growing up in uh, Eugene, you spent six weeks every other summer in Korea with your Korean family. Can you tell us about your experiences during those summers and what, about your Korean family? Yeah, I was really close to my mother's side of the family. And it was always like a delightful time to go there, especially because I grew up um, in the sort of woods of Eugene, Oregon. And I was very... I was like a very lonely child. You know, there weren't like any neighborhood kids for me to play with. And 
Um, there wasn't much to do. And even just like going to the convenience store or like the supermarket, being able to walk there from my like Halmany's apartment was like really exciting to me. And I just loved, you know, like my family lives in Seoul. So like it was going from this small town in the Pacific Northwest to like this urban environment. And that was really fun for me. And then I was in this like small apartment, like with a three bedroom apartment, getting to sleep next to my mom every night in the living room on like a on a futon and just like surrounded by people and like lots of Korean women like doting on me all the time. So it was just like a real, uh, such an amazing part of my childhood and, and a real privilege to get to go there like every other summer for like, you know, six weeks. Um, and I remember every time like really being like, I don't want to go back. <laughs> and my mom being like, well, what about dad? And I was like, oh, you can come here. You can visit. <laughs> what age did you start going? Oh, as long as I could remember. You know, I mean, my mom, it was really important to my mom that she like, she left her whole family, you know? Mm -hmm. So this was like the one time that we got to see them and, and we would go every other summer from from the time I was born, I, from the time I can remember, you know? Yeah, you know, Juliana and I were both saying how, I mean, you might be half Korean, but you're so much more Korean in many ways, certainly than I am, because <laughs> I've only, I only spent one summer in Korea, oh, wow. in, like after high school. So when I went there, it was such a culture shock, like the drains on the bathroom floors, like certain yeah, things yeah, about yeah. Korea, you know? But if you had been going there since you were a baby, it was almost, it's really like a second home. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It is really interesting. Like it's such a spectrum um, of like feelings of like cultural belonging, I guess. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to me, like people who are half who've like, you know, can speak fluent Korean and like, you know, uh, people who have both parents that are Korean that really still really struggle with the language or to be a Korean ad adoptee and like have a totally different type of belonging. So it, there's so many different ways to feel Korean, I feel like. Was it a certain point when you thought, oh my gosh, I'm half, I'm, I don't, I'm not exactly like these Koreans. Like at what point do you feel like you realize that? I mean, I'm sure I was aware of it. Like, I think that when you're a kid, like you maybe just like don't analyze like that sense of belonging as much as like when you're a teenager and that's when mm -hmm. you start to really feel like you don't fit in. Like I remember even growing up in America and like there not being any Asian kids in my class in elementary school. Like I, I truly believe that that, you know, there were, there were some confrontations with like not feeling like I belonged or like feeling embarrassed in some ways, but you know, and in my early years, I remember feeling very special, you know, like that was your parents were like, you're very special. You have these two cultures. And I genuinely felt that way. And then even going to Korea, uh, and this is a bit in a book where like, um, I was very, uh, I felt very celebrated in Korea in a very different way than I felt like in, um, America. And I think part of that just comes from this Korean culture of like, you know, there may be more like complimentary vocally to like children, young children or something. But I remember like, I never, no one ever told me like, oh, she's so pretty or whatever when I, when I was in America. And then every time I went to Korea, it was like, oh, like her face is so small. She's right. like so beautiful. And so I felt like really special and beautiful there. And I knew part of that was because I was like, exotic in this way in Korea. Like mm -hmm. I had, I, I had these like half Caucasian features and that was something that my mother was like, oh, this is like a celebrated thing there. And so when I was a child, I felt, I felt very welcomed in that way. Like I felt very special and welcomed. Even as a teenager, I might've felt that way in Korea. And then going now as an adult, I, I very much see like the, the differences and, and I don't feel like I, qu I quite belong there. I, I'm very like, um, 
aware of things that I'm not aware that I don't think much about here. Just like the way that I present myself or if like I, if my shoes look old or something. <laughs> I think you know, about that so much interesting. more. Yeah. yeah. I haven't been to Korea in a while, but I remember the sort of like um, the East Village kind of like schlumpy way I dress just doesn't fly in Korea. Like if you don't, I don't own a brush and, uh, um, you know, I don't dry clean my clothes. Um, Most of the time I don't wear a bra. So it's this sort of like certain things that just I like started wearing a bra when I was in Korea because I was like, (laughs) I feel I like never wear one really in, in, in the U.S. And I became like, there's so much more of a like panopticon type like feeling uh, yeah, yeah. when you're there and I actually like started wearing a bra because I just it's just too much for me you know I don't want to like offend anyone <laughs> is it still like that I thought once uh k-pop and uh, the k-beauty and it become much more of an international culture um that people recognize that maybe um the the culture in in Korea had opened up and had become much more um diverse. Is that not the case, you think? I I think that's certainly so. Um, I still feel like as an American, as a Korean American going back there, you're just more like aware of it, you know, like in in this way that maybe other Americans like wouldn't wouldn't be when they're there. Like it's it's not that it's not that any like Ajima has like tapped me and be like, you really need to wear a bra or something. (laughs) Um, It's just that feeling of like, I want, you know, it's just a natural human feeling of like, I want to fit in, you know what I mean? Yeah, Um, yeah. And uh, you want to feel like a sense of belonging and part of that is like dressing a certain way or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Were you pretty fluent as a little kid, do you think, in those summers? Not at all, no. Um, I think that my, I think because I grew up around the sound, I feel like my accent is like pretty good, but my mm-hmm. vocabulary and like understanding of like the language is, is pretty limited. I think if anything, it's maybe better than it was because I've like actively worked harder on, on learning it. Um, I actually feel like, I don't know if I should reveal this really, but um, I think that if I were to do a follow-up book, I would want to spend a year in Korea and make a project out of becoming fluent in the language because I think mm-hmm. that's so interesting. And I don't think I'll ever do it unless I like set out to, to document a project in which I do do this. And I think I would be so sad if I never actually really committed to finally becoming fluent in the language. Because I, I think that there's a real barrier that I feel to the culture not being able to speak fluently. Yeah, I mean, I, my Korean is almost non-existent. And so <laughs> I'm afraid to go to Korea because I I know that I'm going to feel kind of so obviously an outsider and embarrassed, you know? where I think it, that's really interesting to me because like, you look full Korean and like, right. and <laughs> like you'll have like the total opposite experience that I do where it's like people will probably assume that you can speak fluently. Whereas mm. for me, like when I come out with like anything in Korean, people are so like shocked and impressed. because And impressed. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. You get the like, opposite like, response. They'll be, oh, yeah. They'll just look disappointed. <laughs> right. I know. I mean, that's why, you know, that you are our, the first guest we've had who's biracial, you know, part Korean. And I'm, it's something I'm, I've always been interested in. You know, my kids are half, so are mm. Juliana's. Oh. And um, growing up, I remember it was rare to see a, a child like at church, you know, who was half Korean. And 
and to be honest, it was so I remember fascinating. I would care because fascinating, but it was like, but I, mm. I felt like the old people averted their eyes. Mm. And I grew up thinking that was like a stigma and they were ashamed. And mm. I know that um, a lot of people in my parents' generation felt that way. There was something mm. about it that reminded them of the war and mm. they didn't want to believe that existed. And now they all have grandchildren who are half Korean, like all mm-hmm. of them. And mm-hmm. so many of my friends have half Asian kids and it's become so um, accepted and loved, and but in a total change of attitude that you couldn't have expected maybe, you know, 40 years ago mm-hmm. or so. Yeah, it's just more common now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you were a kid, you you said you, you didn't feel self-conscious about it at all. And I people, didn't have that experience, yeah, actually. Yeah. I don't know if it was just because, like, my mother had, like, shielded me so much from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that my when my parents were dating, that my mom got a lot of, like, uh, hatred like towards her and that she very much like kept it very private you know like if her and my dad were walking around there would be like men that would like yell traitor and stuff like that and my dad would be like what did they say and she would withhold it from him um so I think that she did experience that a lot more like in the and guess in like the 80s um but whenever we went, I didn't ever feel like looked at as uh, looked down on for my mixed mixed race. But it might have just been because my mother really protected me from. Anything. And your grandmother completely embraced you, it seems, and your aunt. Absolutely, yeah. My family, my my family and I were very close, and I was I felt very loved by them. <laughs> Actually, my grandmother really encouraged my mom to marry my dad. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know why. I think that she just really. My dad was like very they were very poor and um I think that she just saw a lot of potential in my dad and um I think my mom was like a real like party girl that was very directionless and my grandmother was becoming increasingly like frustrated with her and was like you know what like maybe you're too big for this town like go out marry this American guy and like you figure it out because like I can't I can't deal with this anymore. So she actually really pushed my mom into into marrying my dad, I think. So I <laughs> thought it was um, really interesting that uh, in your book, all the people, um, especially on your Korean side, all the Korean people in your life happen to be women. Mm-hmm. Um, your mom is one of three women. Your grandma raised, uh, raised them. Your mom's friends who ended up taking care of her or that you spent time with in Korea were all women as well. Mm-hmm. So there's almost this like this like maternal, like Korean female like group that helped um, bring you up. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Are there lasting connections that you have still? Like I know that you wrote about your relationship with Mangchi and how mm-hmm. she connected you to your heritage and your food. And it's almost like this uh, digital maternal figure. Yeah, I was really lucky. Actually, the first piece of writing that I did that kind of grew into crying in H Mart was this this essay called Love, Loss, and Kimchi. And it was because I, I discovered Mangchi, uh, this Korean YouTube vlogger, who, you know, kind of like demystifies like the Korean um, Korean recipes for for an American audience. And uh, I don't think that other people realize like how rare that is. You know, I think that it's like a weird part of Korean, uh, part of a lot of Asian culture that like that kind of information is not like readily like um, given out, you know. And so, yeah, she was really helpful for me. And I just thought it was a really sweet story that this woman I'd never met had like helped me so much. Um, 
through my grieving process. And it was a very therapeutic thing to be able to like come back home from work and like pull up a new recipe and like make a new dish and like be reminded of this like really wonderful time that I had with my family. And so I wrote this essay and then I saw her do a Q and A um, somewhere in New York, I forget where, with Huni Kim, who's who runs the restaurants Hanjan and Tanji. And I gave her the essay and um, oh. I forgot I put that my, she's so sweet. Like, I think that actually she knows that she's played this role for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of Korean adoptees also have this experience with her. Um, maybe a lot of like uh, people with Korean spouses like have like turned to her mm -hmm. or like, you know, other people who have lost their parents and, and want to reconnect in that way with her. So I think she's really very generously like taken on this role for a lot of people. Um, and she's been very generous with like her time and warmth. And so when the, when the essay was published in Glamour, she saw it and she actually, um, she called me and I forgot, I was like, I, I forgot my number was like on the essay, you know, because I was just, I was submitting the essay. And so it had all my contact information. And she, I got a call from an unknown number and yeah, it was her. And she was just like, I feel like your mom, you know, like I just, uh, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. And like, I'm here for you uh, if you ever need anything. And then I did a little segment with munchies and, and I, I, we talked about Korean food on, on a segment together. I invited her and it was the day before my birthday, my 30th birthday. And she was like, oh, come over, come over tomorrow. I'll cook you dinner. So my husband and my best friend and I like went to her house for dinner and she got me a little like peri baguette cake. And like, she made like pulgogi and like all and her kimchi. And she just had me in her apartment and we like just ate dinner. And it was like such a wonderful experience. She, I'm very, very grateful to, to she's like another life. aunt in yeah your, she's like another in emo, life another like, emo yeah. oh yeah, my yeah. god I love that story yeah so I got really close to her and also my my last remaining aunt my mom's older sister uh Nami it, it, her and I have become a lot closer I think um it's very confusing again and another reason why I would love to learn Korean very soon uh and become fluent and and take lessons again is because uh it's very difficult to communicate with her because mm. she's she speaks very little English and I speak very little Korean and I'm so hungry to like talk to her uh, because she's really the only you know she lost two sisters uh yeah. very you know within four years and I'm really excited because the book is going to be translated in Korean. It's being published uh, over there probably next year. And, you know, there's there's also so much that can be unsaid. And I've learned that so much, mm -hmm. like, growing up, like, of communicating just, like, by having the same blood and, like, struggling with words. Like, there is something that's really deep that's shared that can still be shared there. But I always have this kind of anxiety that she doesn't know exactly, like, how I how I feel and like how grateful I am to her and how like wary I am of intruding into her life, you know, because she's someone that's gone through like so much pain just because I'm an artist and I feel like it's, it helps me to dig into that doesn't mean that that is something that mm -hmm. helps her. And so I always wonder like, Oh, am I like, you know, I don't want to bring up any painful memories just because like, that's healing to me and maybe isn't healing for her, you know? Well, sh when she reads the book in translation, she'll really understand how you feel and how you, mm. how much you treasure her. That would be really special. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. She reads I that. Can't yeah. Wait. Um, so Juliana and I, we were talking about how, um, we're so struck how you use a lot of Korean iconography. The new album cover has these persimmons 
there's a video where you wearing, I think it's your mother's handbook. Mm-hmm. There are just these icons of Korean culture that you seem to have grabbed onto and want to highlight. Can you tell us a little bit about why you, you've decided that these are important to you for Japanese breakfast? Yeah, I mean, I started this project before my mom got sick, which is why it has this sort of like, you know, I, I definitely didn't ever think that I would like talk this much about my identity or it would become so important to me. You know, when I named this project Japanese Breakfast, I was just like looking at like, I, at the time I was like uploading these songs onto Tumblr and I was following all of these like Tumblrs that had like anime gifs of like food. And so I would upload a song and then like post a like, animated gif of like Japanese breakfast or like whatever and then I just decided to name the the project this and then once my mom got sick and then she passed away suddenly my I my this like part of my cultural identity became really important and started becoming like really talked about um and so I, I think that part of it comes from like you know you see a lot of like American bands like using Asian iconography like uh for their art and it felt like you know I I'm the person that deserves to actually use those like really compelling images for for my work and then I also just think like you know I I was thinking you know when I made the everybody wants to love you video um I had my mother's humble that she actually wore to my wedding that my aunt had bought her and I just thought it would be really funny to like juxtapose like, you know, things that you do in your 20s, like in Amer- what I would do uh, with this like very traditional dress that you've never like seen in this context before. It was like kind of a play on like, oh, everyone sees me as this like Asian woman in the indie sphere. But like, you know, I'm going to like really crash that image with this other image for the persimmons. Like I just thought that, you know, that hanging persimmon like looked so beautiful and I love the idea that there's this like very hard bitter fruit uh that matures into something very sweet and so I felt like you know I had written these two records about grief and uh suffering and sadness (laughs) and you know by after writing those two albums and writing this whole book about it I felt really ready to like move on and, and take on a new topic and I wanted to like fling myself to the other end of the spectrum and write about joy so this new album is called Jubilee and it's very much about joy and and sort of fighting for joy or choosing joy in your life and so I like the idea of like you know the metaphor of sort of evolving from something that's like very hard and bitter into and allowing the environment to change you into something sweet. Well, you're book is so open and so raw. It's, uh, it's at times just kind of shocking to read that um, you could be so open. Um, and uh, to take you back to that grief after you've done, you've produced and put out those two albums and spoken so much about it. I mean, it's, it must be hard to revisit that again, especially since you have the album coming out the, uh, a month later, that is the, the other end of the spectrum. Hmm. Does it, it must, does it take a lot out of you? Um, when I was writing the book, it definitely was very hard. I feel like especially there's this sort of middle of the book that's like definitely very challenging. And it was a lot of like hunched over crying, uh, at a laptop and having to take a lot of breaks and, um, a lot of agony. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. But I also felt like there was this real sense of urgency that I had to like 
warn people that this happens. That was like mm -hmm. a really clear thing when I was going through this of just like no one warned me that this that these things happened. And I was very like upset at the world that it had not prepared me for the experience that I have of just how tough and involved and real caretaking can can be and watching someone's health deteriorate like that and watching cancer and chemo like just how ugly it really gets. It felt really important to me that I had to go there because I felt like I needed, I really needed people to understand what I went through. And um, I really just felt this need to like bear all wounds. And there was also part of it that there, that was like, I wanted to warn people that this, that this, this is what it looks like, you know? And um, because I wish in some ways that I had read something that would have made me know that this could happen. I really loved when you're talking about sort of your birth, you know, as a as a musician, one of the people who inspired you was Karen O, because she is one of the very few Asian rockers out there, or certainly half. Did you ever get to meet her? I never got to meet her, but I'm actually doing an interview with her uh, next week, so That's I'm awesome. finally getting my yeah. chance. Yeah, how I'm, cool. I, yeah, she's she's my hero. I'm 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 very scared to talk to her, honestly, but. <laughs> Uh, I'm also very excited. Do you remember the first time you saw her or listened to her the music? I actually have school? never gotten to see, I've never seen her live, which I'm very, I hope that I get to someday. But um, I was in high school and really like coming into my own of like my, my personal music taste. And so I was hanging out with a lot of musicians. And uh, I remember this guy gave me um, this DVD of like a uh, live performance at the Fillmore. And it starts with her just like bounding out like from the side of the stage. And, uh, you know, she proceeds to like spit water into the crowd and like, you know, choke herself with the mic cord and like deep throat the microphone. And I was just like, who is that? You know, and I didn't even know she was Korean at the time and then like became obsessed with her just from that performance alone. Uh, and like read every interview I could find and, you know, um, got every album I could. And, and then when I found out, you know, that she was half Korean, it was like mind blowing, you know, yeah. um, just like, that's me. <laughs> you described yourself, um, or your family's perception of you in high school as like a bad girl, right? What the would they call you? Famous bad girl. Famous <laughs> bad girl. Yeah. Yeah, How do you I say don't... that in Korean? How would you say the famous bad girl? I have Napun... no idea. Yeah, Napunyoja. Napunyoja, right? <laughs> Napunyoja, yeah. Uh, like... She would say it in English. She actually, like, this was something that she revealed to me much later on was like, you know, oh, it's, she's the fa you were You were famous bad girl. And I think, I don't, you know, I think I would like to believe that, like, my parents were really exaggerating. But I, I basically was just, like, a very fussy child, like, from a young age. And then I was also a very rotten teenager. And then, you know, I think I, – I don't know why I was like that. I, I, my, I guess I just cried a lot and I would, like, disappear and, you know, I would always get hurt and always complaining. I was just annoying, little turd, you know. <laughs> Um, and so I grew up knowing that, and I think that my my aunts knew that too. I think I was just spoiled, you know. I had this like homemaker mom that I was like with all the time. I was only child. I was like so sensitive, like about everything. And then, you know, as a teenager, that kind of sensitivity developed into another totally new rotten way. And then as an adult, I think that those sensitivities like really 
or maybe what made made me become a, an artist, you know? Like, I think, I would like to believe that there was a point to all of this <laughs> that's positive. Yeah. Uh, so that might be just like me, like validating that experience. But um, I would like to believe that I, I feel things very intensely and I didn't know what to do with that type of energy when I was a kid. I was so hyperactive, very hyperactive kid. And I think now I just know how to channel that energy much better as an adult and, and it goes into making things uh, instead of like terrorizing parents. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, that intensity and all the energy you have really comes through in your book because I, I was reading it and I'm thinking, okay, she directs, she writes, she makes music, she... Um, I mean, you throw yourself into the cooking efforts because I, I was thinking about even just making the the kimchi, uh, and you went and you got the um, the ongi yeah, at the grocery yeah. store, and I, and I thought, okay, she's not just even making the the pechu kimchi; she's making the chonga kimchi. She's doing like two different kinds, mm. and uh, um, it's there's so much. There's a lot of intentional effort that goes into just focusing creative channels into different things. And it's, um, it's, there's a lot of work that you put into your life. Mm. I think that especially happened after I lost my mom. Uh, I think that that was just a way that like grief kind of manifested itself was like, I, I needed to become a bit of a workaholic I think to like ground myself and I was so worried that if I really let myself fall from constantly being busy with some project or working that I would fall into like a very deep depression that I would not be able to recover from and so I think that that's just really stayed with me and it's a very you know was a very positive way of like how how I kind of moved through my grief, I think. Michelle, Juliana and I just recently interviewed Changri Lee. Oh, I love him. I'm sure you love him, right? I love Native speaker. Yes, and a lot of your book, you know, recalled that essay he wrote for The New Yorker about his mom. I mean, Mm -hmm. there were amazing parallels and about cooking for your mother when she's ill. Did you read his newest book? I haven't read his newest book yet. I would I would love to check it out, but I did really enjoy Native Speaker and I sort of like discovered him in like the last stages of my writing process and was like, "Oh my god, is this too similar?" <laughs> after after I had read the New Yorker piece, but I was mm-hmm. like so moved because like, you know, I, I believe that his mother also like suffered from yes. the same illness. His favorite thing that she made also is the her kalbi or I feel like there's like a very special connection to kalbi in particular it's like it's very like decadent like dish where everyone's mom like has their own recipe for it and that was very much like the thing that my mom made for me every time I came back from college and if I could think of like a meal that my mom prepared it was always like the same kalbi with the same panchan and like jjigae like on the side and stuff Yeah, after reading your book, it made me think, I got to go marinate some ribs. Some cup, yeah. <laughs> you know? I want to ask you, your dad and your Yumon Nami mm-hmm. are the two people who've known you since you were a baby and you've they've seen you through all these stages and seen your you know, tremendous success and how you're channeling your creativity now. I mean, what do they think about your journey? I think it's still like really hard you know, for that generation to like really get it, you know? So there are certain moments where it's like when we played Coachella or like when we played 
um, Jimmy Fallon, my, I, I know my aunt was like very, was like, oh, this is a thing, you know, or like when we played Korea, like, I think that she finally was like, oh, you're not just like making this up, you know? Um, but I feel like there's always, you know, like, it's not, it's not like I'm like Taylor Swift. Like it, it's like, I think it's always kind of like a, a bit of a divide that hopefully gets closed as we become bigger. But yeah, I think they're, they're really proud of me and they're very excited. Uh, I never feel like it's real in a way. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I will eventually. <laughs> I just wonder if they think, oh, it all makes sense now. Um, I feel you know? like my dad, it's, it's hard to get a grasp on like what's going on with my dad in general. I feel like if my mom was alive, she would absolutely have that feeling. And I think she was starting to, and it is like one of the greatest like sadnesses in my life. But it also, you know, in some ways, like it feels like my, I'm not a religious person or even a spiritual person, but it very much feels like my mom has looked out for me in the past like few years. Uh, it brings me so much sadness because I think she's the only person that would actually feel that way. I have that constant feeling where I, I'm trying to make someone proud and I don't know who it is because it's not, um, it's not anyone in my life and it's never satisfying. And I think that there will always be like this unsatisfying feeling that no matter how many people I tell like what I've accomplished or no matter how much I accomplish, it will never feel complete because she'll never know, you know, but she would have been the person absolutely that would have said to me, you know, it all makes sense now. Well, there's that comment in your book where your mother says to you, I just never met anyone like you. Mm. And it's like, she's recognizing that you're not just unruly. You're not just, yeah. you know, disobedient, yes, um, yeah. that you're just a, a different person person a different being and she's almost discovering that oh you know this totally. is totally that was a, a huge person. a huge turning point in our relationship absolutely because I think that we were both going through that you know like I also I just saw my mom as this like strict figure and this cruel <laughs> person I didn't really think much about like the why she was doing what she was doing or what made her this way. I just thought like, you're in the way, you know, like, and you don't get it. Um, and I think that as I got older and I especially started like taking care of myself and like a house, you know, myself, I realized like how much I had really taken for granted. And all the times my mom was like, you're going to regret this. You're going to regret this. She was right. And so, you know, I think we were able to like kind of go off our own ways when I was in college for a few years. And when we came back together, we were really able to see each other in a new light. And my mom was able to let go of a lot. And I was able to kind of like appreciate everything that she had done for me in this way that I, I hadn't been able to before. You know, I think she was just so worried about my mental health. Um, she was worried about not only like the financial struggles of what it, what it takes to be an artist. And, and she was so afraid of, you know, what if she, it's, it's a lottery ticket, you know, like what if you fail and what if you don't get it, what's your backup plan? And I don't want you to like go through so much rejection, so much like mental anguish, like in the process of trying to make it work for you and then discover it, it didn't work out. Uh, and she felt like it was her duty to like protect me from that you know it was it, I don't think it was that she didn't believe that I could do it but I think that she just she felt like as a mother she had to protect me from that from that lifestyle and you know I don't I don't blame her at the time I was so angry about it but I uh I don't blame her for that
I want to ask you about your husband because in the book he comes off as so supportive and I love that he's so game for all things Korean. <laughs> it's it's like he goes and eats all the food, even the weird stuff that a lot of white guys won't eat. Um, your mom or your dad said, oh, he eats just like a Korean, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you traveled there. It made me wonder also, sometimes I think the way I look at Korea is very different from how, you know, a non-Korean would look at Korea where I realized Korea has gotten so cool in the last couple of decades. I still don't realize like there is something freaking cool about going to Seoul and like it's a really exciting city. What, what do you think is it that he likes about her? What is it because it's connection to you or is he seeing things a different way where he's just stimulated by the city? I think he's just an adventurous, like an open person. And I've like really opened him up in that way to like new experiences. And he's like been really down and like into it. Yeah, it's really nice. We just both are, are like that because he was raised in his grandmother is a microbiologist. And so his family was like, just cooked the shit out of chicken. Like they just like ate like really well. They ate like well done everything. And like, you know, like his, he never really grew up like with the real appreciation of food. He always ate bread because like that was always like the, you know, thing that tasted really good. You know, when we started dating, like I, and I had like such a passion for food that like, you know, it became like such a like fun part of our relationship that he like was really interested. And obviously like he knows that I mean, I don't know what his relationship to, to Korean culture. I mean, he's he's gotten really lucky and gotten to meet like such wonderful people. Like my family has really welcomed him into their life. And uh, it was really fun because like the last few years that I've gone to Korea with him, my uncle and my aunt and, and him and I, we get to go on these like little double dates together that I think like the dynamic is much better than if I was just like, it was the three of us. Now it's like two couples like go on vacation mm -hmm. together in Jeonju or like, you know, two couples like go like out to dinner. Uh, so we're able, you know, my uncle and him can like go off and do like something and then my aunt and I can go off and do something. So it's it's become a really rich part of our, our lives. Um, and yeah, he's just been really down. I, I, I'm really lucky that like I have a husband that's just is okay with us staying in Korea for six weeks and, you know, finding Yeah, he seems to have totally embraced it. That's great. Yeah. One thing we want to ask you is, can you give us maybe like five things that you love to buy at H-Mart? We'd okay. love to hear what's on your list. Let me think of some really good ones. Um, I always buy, uh, if I don't have the time to make my own kimchi, I will buy the mugen kimchi. Like, th let me, let me get it. I love this. Visual aids. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Show and tell. Okay. I want to pick some really good staples here. I, for some reason, I cannot figure out how to make dongchimi. So this is like my favorite thing for the summer is um, like using the gungmul and like uh, having the dongchimi radish, put a little bit of sesame oil, gochugaru and sesame seeds and like eat it, put a couple ice cubes so it's like really cold. In the summertime, like I love eating this. So this is like, I love it when I can find this one. And then I also recently realized that this, this brand uh, is really good because it's like mugun kimchi and like, it's really old. So it's really good for like stews, like kimchi jjigae and like bokumbap and stuff like that. It needs to be like this funky, I feel like. So it's called Jonga? Yeah, it's just the Jonga Jip brand. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make this mugun chi that like, it's already really old, so I don't have to like wait for any kimchi that I'm making 
to make the because oh, I good to kimchi jjigae has to be like so funky, you know, it has to be like have a really deep flavor, and I feel like you have to get like this really old one. This is like a shortcut. Uh, I also got really into uh, makgeolli like in the last few years, so oh, I got yeah. I like buying uh, kuksundang makgeolli. Uh, it's really good for Korean barbecue. Oh, if I'm feeling fancy, it's really expensive, but I love, I have so many good memories of um, eating ojingo with my dad. Oh, and yeah. so we would, and then so I guess the last thing is I always, it's Japanese, but I always buy kupi mayonnaise. It's like the oh, Japanese mayonnaise that has like MSG in it. And so I'll mix the kupi mayonnaise with gochujang with the cold beer and like some peanuts i'll roast the ojingo on the gas stove and then i'll shred it and then chew it and use the gochujang and mayonnaise as a dipping sauce oh man I, you are so <laughs> korean <laughs> yeah it's like oh hanaboji like snack <laughs> i love watching tv and eating ojingo and peanuts with like a cold beer or like some oh my that's my favorite thing but it's really, it's like $20 to buy this ojingo, but, you know, I, it's worth you know, it for me. You know, one of my oldest um, memories of growing up in Korea, because I moved to the States when I was five, is oh, being wow. little and my parents pre-chewing ojingo for me. <gasps> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like a little baby bird. I, I can see that. I don't know if I had that, but I, you know, that makes sense to me. It does, because like afterwards your jaw hurts. I know, I know. Juliana, I don't have any more questions. Do you? No, I just really um, enjoyed our conversation together. Thank and, you, me uh, too. Um, it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So it was great so to great to meet you. both of you. I hope that we can all have Korean barbecue together someday. Yes. <laughs> Thank you to Michelle Zahner for being our guest on K-Pod, a production of KoreanAmericanStory.org. Michelle's book, Crying in H Mart, is being published this week, and her new Japanese breakfast album, Jubilee, will be out in June. Our audio engineer is AJ Valente. Our production manager is Jessica Park. Our executive producer is HJ Lee. Please follow us on Instagram at KPodPod. And you can follow me at Catherine Hong 100. And you can follow Juliana at Juliana underscore Son. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>